So I'd like to welcome you again. You've been welcomed a few times, but now you're at the end or close to the end of the first day. And we have probably some impression about how things are going after the first day. But to start before that, I hope you've taken some time to appreciate what it took to get here. You formed an intention to come, and after that intention, you had to make some real plans, how you were going to get here. You had to make arrangements for someone maybe to take care of your pet or your plants, your family members, children. Maybe somebody had to step in for you at work. Whatever it is, there were some challenges maybe challenges of transportation, getting here, or even expense. And whatever they are, you manage them quite well because here you are. And they may seem like little challenges, but they're the kind of challenges that you're met with every day in your life. Before uh, coming here... um, I felt like I was met with a challenge too, which is a similar challenge that I had last year when I was going to give a Dharma talk here. Um, As I contemplated it, well, actually, fear came up. Fear of speaking to you. And it just, it's one of those things that arises. I could say why it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't really matter. I'm sure you've had that experience that something comes up and it doesn't necessarily mesh with logic, but it's there just the same. And so I wanted to tell you about it because this is going to sort of be the the template of how we can work with challenges, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. All kinds of challenges. Challenges in life, challenges in your practice, the challenges that you've already met since you've been here. There's no end to challenges. So how did I work with it? I've had some practice, luckily, and some guidance, so and some experience of doing this. And so basically what I did is that to the best of my ability, I relaxed my body and I recognized the presence of the tension Mm -hmm. and the fear that was there. And I have a particular place when you get sensitive to (coughs) self-judgment or fear or something like that, you can find it in a particular place in your body. Mine tends to be here kind of in the abdominal region. And so I would relax as much as possible, recognize it, feel it in my body, allow it to be there, try my best not to tighten up, not to contract around it, which is a very usual response, and see what happens. And, and hold my attention there. And what would happen is, for this time anyway, in time it loosened, the contraction loosened, it dissipated. And there was a moment when it was gone. 
and that felt very relieving. And then as I sat there, or as I worked with this, there would be a new arising of tension or fear or whatever it was. And so this is something that gets repeated over and over again. So we'll just save that like a little bookmark for now because we're going to come back to it and see what the teachings say and how we can use this in whatever challenges we face. So one of the things that happens when you come on a retreat like this is you come with expectations, even if they're not explicit, even if you haven't said them out loud or really acknowledged them. Your expectations might be that you will enjoy yourself, that you'll be comfortable, that you'll be able to be focused and clear and unconfused. That I think I may have said comfortable, but I'll say that again. You want to be comfortable. Um, you probably would like the food to be good, the beds to be soft, the sitting to be comfortable, the instructions to be clear, all kinds of things like that. And yet, maybe that's not what you got. Maybe instead you're feeling discomfort, confused, unclear, agitated, your mind isn't focusing, it's jumping all over the place, and it doesn't probably feel so good. So the expectations, of course, are a setup. They're a setup for suffering, discontent, And yet we do it anyway. So other things that could happen, very specific things, in terms of your physical comfort, your knees hurt, your back is tight, your shoulders are clenched, your jaw gets tight, maybe you're really sleepy, or maybe you're really restless. All of those things can happen, and they do to everyone. So we can also complicate that with a lot of mental anguish, with questions like, do I really belong here? Maybe I'm not a good yogi. Maybe I've had too much experience. Maybe I haven't had enough experience. Maybe I just don't get it. Maybe I'm not that kind of a person. And this doesn't get us very far either. It just kind of adds to it. On top of that, maybe we've had a friend who said, you're paying good money to go do that? And maybe you're beginning to agree, I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes it seems that way. My first retreat was really difficult, very painful, because I was convinced that I had to sit or I had to be on a bench. I didn't even notice that people were on chairs. I didn't even notice. I was pretty delusional. So I was in a lot of discomfort and a lot of agitation on top of that. And that's just the way I had to go through that particular retreat. The question in my mind is, why did I ever sign up for another one? 
<laughs> but it must have called to me in some way because I did for many others after that and, and I'm still doing it. But when you ask that question, do I belong because I'm not doing well, because I'm not concentrated, I'm not sitting well, I'm all of those things, the answer is yes to each and every one of you. It doesn't matter what your experience is, you belong. This is the place for you. You've chosen to come here, and challenges are going to come your way. It's part of the contract you made when you were born. It's the agreement you made with life that when you were born, as a human being, you were going to be subject to all kinds of challenges. Challenges of the body, challenges of the heart, challenges of the mind. So, it's interesting because uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who's a Thai forest monk, says that having a human body is a continuous experience of being irritated. (laughs) We're all subject to the impingements from birth through death. And by that he means that everything in your experience, every sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, thought is part of your experience. And it's like lots of darts being thrown your way. All of it. They're all forms of stimulation. They're all forms of agitation. Some we like, some we don't like. When we think of our senses, we often think of what we like. But how about rotten smells? Or how about... Um, viewing a garbage dump or what about the unpleasant that's all part of our our sensual our sense experience as well and it all comes so what's our relationship with that Pema Chodron says to be fully alive fully human and completely awake is to be continuously thrown out of the nest. In a sense, that's what happens when we're challenged with something. We kind of feel thrown out of the nest. What do we do now? How do we deal with this? So what's interesting, of course, is that all these challenges are common to all of us. Not one of us is here who hasn't faced numerous challenges in our life. Old age, sickness, death, these are the big ones. And we're all facing those and many others as well. So one of the questions might be, why do we practice with challenges? Why don't we just set them aside, go and live our lives? continue to use our smartphones and text and our computers and distract ourselves and and uh, just forget about that unpleasant stuff. Well, it turns out that we do want to practice with challenges because 
somehow we know that we can live with more ease if we can be more comfortable with whatever life dishes up. And life dishes up a variety of things, as you already know. Our usual patterns for dealing with challenges aren't to really deal with them. Our usual patterns are to set it aside, turn away, distract ourselves, to try to get rid of it, whatever it is. Just try and get rid of it. To bury it, to annihilate it. Or if it's something really pleasant, to hold on tight and try and get more of it. Well, these are both recipes for dukkha, what the Buddha calls dukkha. Translated as suffering most often, but um, there probably are many other words that fit the bill, like dissatisfaction, disharmony, uncertainty, some underlying something in your experience that feels not quite right. We're really confronted with that a lot. We're confronted with it because we want and we don't want. And often we get what we don't want and we don't get what we want. We get a pairing with the unloved, and we get separated from the loved. And even if we get what we want, we find that it doesn't last, or it wasn't what we wanted after all. The new car gets scratched and old. Even, I I was thinking, even... um, sense pleasures, thinking of tickling that sometimes can feel pleasant when it starts, but it doesn't feel pleasant if it lasts a long time. So one of the things that happens with our our usual habitual reaction of turning away from experience is that there is some subtle contraction somewhere in the body. This may be a clue for how we're going to deal with it. And it's interesting because uh, we will continue to do our habitual pattern, whatever that is, because it's familiar to us. It feels like an old friend. It feels like if we just try and figure it out, if we just turn away from it, that um, that we'll, we'll do okay. We'll get rid of it. We won't have to deal with it. It's a bit like an old friend, even if it's not satisfying for what happens. So, you know, there's a, in terms of 
turning away from experience, there's actually a biological underpinning, which is that in our ancient past, when we were in survival mode, it was really important to know what was dangerous and to turn away from it. If you were scanning the horizon for a wild animal, you'd want to know when there was danger and you'd want to know what to do about it and to act decisively. It would be fear that would bring you to that correct behavior. And even now, a one-celled organism of an amoeba will move away from a hostile environment, from an acid environment. So there's this biology that's behind our fear reactions, our moving away from, not wanting to deal with challenge or experience. And yet it's possible to build a new response. I'll talk about that in a minute. Speaking of turning away, it could actually be dangerous. I was remembering an experience that I had in Mexico probably, oh, 25 years ago at least, maybe 30 years ago, where um, I was in the ocean and I was going to body surf, only at that time I really didn't know much about the ocean. And so... I was in the water and the waves seemed to be just fine and then all of a sudden there was a huge gargantuan set of waves that came in. They looked stories high to me. I have no idea how high they really were. And my natural fear reaction was to turn around and head for the shore. And those of you who know more about the ocean, know that that is not the right response. So these gigantic waves came crashing down on me. I felt like I was in a gigantic washing machine or mixer. I got turned around, slammed down, sand in every orifice, I'm sure, and came up finally after I don't know how long gasping, and another wave came. So, of course, what I learned, and it took so long afterwards to undo this, because I did end up body surfing and and boogie boarding in waves that were somewhat substantial, nothing like that, is that turning toward is the place of safety, that you have to dive under the wave to a place where there's no turbulence, and where you can be safe. It's so counterintuitive, and yet that's what could save you. I know Bob talks at times about turning toward the skid when you're driving in snowy or wet conditions and you start skidding. If you steer away from the skid, then you spin and it could be a dangerous situation. Counterintuitive. But the place of refuge is actually right in the heart of it all. 
When you start examining your particular challenges, you probably don't see it that way. And so it really takes some time. It takes courage. And it takes patience. And it takes forbearance. And it takes a lot of kindness. We're working against old, old, old habits and conditioning. And there's fear that comes up when we work with some of these things. Another thought I had is, you know, it doesn't work to bury it. It's like having hot coals from a fire. If you bury them in the sand, they don't go out. They just keep burning. And they might emerge in some unexpected way. And that feels like being hijacked when they do that. So the refuge, the safety, is in going right into the heart of it. Neuroscience says we can do this. And the Buddha said we could do this. The Buddha said, if it were not possible, I would not ask it of you. Neuroscience says that with our focused attention, with intention, we actually build a new response. The way that works is that every time you focus your attention with intention, there's more gray matter that's actually made. The axons are myelinized. They have more conductive material added to them. And the response is quicker. And there's actually more neurons being created. And they can actually... Uh, image this on functional MRIs. They can see that the gray matter in a meditator's brain is growing. So that focused attention with intention sounds a lot like what we're doing here all the time. It sounds like mindfulness practice. They don't call it that, but it's what it is. Your focused attention with intention can change your response to the most difficult challenges. And it's not that we can get rid of things. That's not what happens when you do this. What happens is you change your relationship with it. When I was talking about um, my fear response or my self-judging response, whatever it was that I located it in my body, it's not that it necessarily gets rid of it. I just have a different relationship with it. I feel more at ease with it. I feel I can be there and allow it to be there. And it just is what it is. 
I'm going to talk a little bit about how we actually do this and how the Four Noble Truths offers a template for how to work with this. But first, I think, I'm going to read a poem. This poem is one that I actually read last year, I believe. But it's so interesting to me because... He talks, this is a a poem by Rumi. He talks about this in the same way that Ajahn Sumedho does. I don't know that if Ajahn Sumedho read Rumi, but what I do think is that Rumi may very well have had contact with some Buddhist thought because of where he lived and when he lived. In Afghanistan, Buddhism, of course, had moved all the way into Afghanistan, and he lived in a particular place that was a real crossroads for religious um, practice and also commerce. I think in the somewhere in the 13th century. Does anyone know for sure? It's called the Guest House. I read this a lot. I even actually almost memorized it because I wanted to, but I'm not going to try to recite it from memory tonight. This is about us, each one of us. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of the furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for a new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. you might notice that the guests weren't devas or angels. There was joy, but there was depression, meanness, dark thought, shame, malice. Those are the guests that he says we can welcome. Treat honorably, feed, entertain. Is it possible to welcome those guests? Such a radical idea. Instead of kicking them out the door, slamming the door in their face, yelling, I don't want to see you, I don't want to deal with you. 
invite them into your consciousness, into your awareness. And with as much ease and grace as possible, allow them to hang out for a while. And they may stick around for a while. Maybe they'll leave, and then maybe they'll come back. He's not saying that you're going to get rid of them. He's saying maybe they have something to teach us. That's both the good news and the bad news. Because it seems like the right thing to do to just shut them out. So we'll hold on to that for a moment while we go on. So the question is, how do we How do we do it? How do we turn toward experience? How do we turn toward these challenges, whatever they are, whether they're a huge life challenge, whether it's discomfort that you're having right now, or sleepiness, or restlessness? How do we turn toward them? What's the way to do it? So there are two templates. One comes from the Four Noble Truths and the other comes from a Western Vipassana teacher. I'll tell you about both of them. You know the Four Noble Truths stated as kind of a medical prescription. There's a problem, an illness, and that's called suffering. There's a cause for this illness and that's what the um, the cause of suffering is, craving. There's actually an, uh, a good prognosis. There's a possibility of ending this illness, and that's the end of suffering. And there's a particular prescription, a particular course of action, and that's the Eightfold Path. And each one of these truths, these noble truths, are divided into three more parts. So we're going to talk about how the noble truth of suffering is divided into three parts. And what those parts are, they're another prescription for practice. First, it's important to know that it is a noble truth, not a dismal truth. It never said that all life is suffering. It never said that it's your suffering and yours alone. It never said that's all there is. It's not stated as an ultimate fact. It's stated as something to explore. There is suffering. It exists. So that's the statement. It's the first part, a statement. And that's considered an insight. When you know, when you recognize a suffering, a discontent, a disharmony, a challenge, that's the first insight. It's here. It's here. 
It's what's on my lap or in my gut. That's the first one. And it's this is the non-personal part of suffering. The noble truth of it is that there is suffering, not that it belongs to me. It's not mine. It's not because I'm a good person or a bad person. There's just suffering. It's part of human human existence. So that's the statement. That's called pariyati in Pali, the statement. And then there's the prescription, what you're supposed to do for practice. And that's patipati. I like these words. They sound good to me. And this is how you're supposed to practice. And what it says in the sutta is suffering should be understood. What does that mean, suffering should be understood? It means you need to look at it. You need to open to it. You need to be willing to investigate it over and over and over. Suffering should be understood. And it might be understood one time, and it might need to be understood a thousand times, whatever this one particular thing is. This is where the connection to the Rumi poem comes in, too, because Ajahn Sumedho says, what if we change that? What if it's not suffering should be understood? What if it's suffering should be welcomed? What does it mean to welcome So Rumi and Sumedho are both saying, okay, it's not enough to just see it. You need to really know it. You need to understand it. You need to hang out with it. It's not necessarily comfortable. It sounds simple, but it's not easy. It takes some courage to decide to just slightly turn toward. It's usually uncomfortable somewhere in the body. And it might be uncomfortable as mental anguish as well, or emotional anguish, but it's always in the body. And then the third part of this prescription is the patiweda. It's the result of practice. It's when it has been understood. When you've looked at it, when you know it, know it, know it, know it, when you really know it, you've worked with it, you've accepted it, you've allowed it to be what it is, you haven't gotten rid of it, you've allowed it to be what it is without struggle. You've released the struggle, even if it's for a moment. And in that release of the struggle, even if it's for a moment, that is also cessation. You've had a moment of cessation, which is the third noble truth, the end of suffering. So it's recognizing, practicing with, by opening to, investigating, knowing, 
And by the way, this investigation isn't an analytic, it's not an analytic investigation. It's the investigation of knowing where it is, what's happening in your body. Where's the tension? Where's the gripping? Or where's the pain? Where's the discomfort? Where's the upset? Where is it? Ajahn Sumedho also says, when something arises like that, to say, it's like this. Fear is like this. It's not personal. But this is what it is. Just this. The other template comes from a Western Vipassana teacher whose name is Tara Brock from Washington, D.C. And she calls this RAIN. R-A-I-N. That's the acronym for it. And it's very similar to what I just did with the Four Noble Truths. A little different. Maybe it would be easier to use because you can remember the initials. R is recognize, name. It's the same thing as part of the first step within the Four Noble Truths, the statement, to recognize it, whatever it is. And the A is to accept, to allow. The next step is to investigate, So actually, the A and I of RAIN are very similar to the practice part from the Four Noble Truths, where it says suffering is to be understood. That's when you're accepting, opening to, and investigating the same thing. And the last letter, N, is not personal, non-personal which again is this pointing to these energies arising, these physical sensations arising, these mental states arising that just come and go. They're non-personal. They're just part of human experience. Everybody has them. The interesting part is that as we really move into exploring these challenges and our sufferings, we really develop a lot of compassion for ourselves and for everyone else. We see how we're all in this together. None of us is exempt. We're really all in it together. So, more specifically... I'll mention a couple things and how you might work with them. One of the things that I had to work with for years was sleepiness. Some of you have felt sleepy, I'm sure, while you've been here. And you know, we can frame some of these challenges and if we understand why this sleepiness is going on, we're being a lot kinder to ourselves 
Most of us aren't very rested. Most of us don't get enough sleep at night. Or our lives are demanding enough so that there's enough stress and we're really not rested. I hope there's somebody here who is, but I'm not one of them either. (laughs) So that's the background. So when we say, oh, you know, I'm really not very rested. I did everything I could to get here, and it didn't include resting a lot or sleeping enough. It surrounds it with a little bit of kindness and some clarity, too, to do that. And then there actually are some things that we can do. But first I wanted to share with you that a friend of mine who was uh, in a training with me for community Dharma leaders went to a retreat in Spain. And this is really stuck in my mind because I just could hardly believe it. The room that they were in was huge and there were mattresses all over the floor. And the teacher encouraged them to lie down and rest as much as they wanted to and to go to sleep if they needed to. And she said they did a lot of sleeping at first. She said there was one man who slept the entire two weeks. (laughs) But I don't, I think he may have been the only one. But the point she was making and maybe the point of this retreat and the point that the teacher was making that practice was so different coming from this place of deep rest and deep care. And so it would be wonderful if we could find a way to take care of ourselves in that way. There aren't mattresses at this retreat, but we want you to take care of yourself anyway. So when sleepiness comes and you're here, in the meditation hall, what could you do? There actually are a number of things to do, and this is something that I discovered for me and I found very helpful. I started asking the question, what is sleepiness? Instead of just calling it something, what is it really? And I started investigating. I investigated physical sensation. Well, let's see, what really happens? Well, the eyelids start drooping. The eyes might feel like they're burning. The head starts feeling like there's a lot of pressure at the sides or the back. There's kind of a slumping in the, in the posture. The head kind of tilts back and then you're gone. And so I, in investigating, what sleepiness is, I became more interested. And when there's more interest created, there's more energy. And so it's just enough to keep you awake. And this is mindfulness practice, investigating your sleepiness. And it's no less important than anything else. And I guess that's a point I want to make. No matter what you're doing in your practice, what challenge you're working with, whether you consider it inconsequential or important, there's actually no one thing that's any more important than anything else. So that's one way 
of trying to work with sleepiness. We've also given you other suggestions while you've been here, standing up, opening your eyes enough to let in a little bit of light. The Buddha suggests rubbing your limbs, although I'm not sure he suggested that in the meditation hall. And um, splashing water on your face. And the last thing he says to do is go to sleep. But when you sleep, then when you wake up, get up quickly. So those are some things you might do with sleepiness if that seems to be one of your challenges while you're here. Another one, of course, is physical discomfort. There are lots of us who have old knees, tight backs, necks that have a crink in them, or just exercise injuries, injuries of living. So if that should be the case, you follow the same template of the Four Noble Truths or RAIN. (coughs) You recognize wherever the discomfort is, if it's your knee, you go to your knee. But before you do that, you try your best to relax yourself so that you're not adding extra tension to it. And you try to settle your mind just knowing it's like this. It's just discomfort. It's just pain. The suffering comes from the reaction to the pain or the discomfort. And it's has a synergistic effect. It's not just there's pain and your react plus your reaction. It's more multiplied when you have pain and then a reaction to it. So if you can calm the body a little bit through relaxation and have an open, allowing attitude, that goes very far in dealing with the physical pain or or um, discomfort. And when you do touch into it, wherever it is, to be interested in the same way as investigating sleepiness. What is it really? Where is it? What's its character? Is it tingly? Is it throbbing? Is it um, hot? Is it cold? And does it stay the same? Does it change and move? Does it move to a new location? So these are ways of investigating and becoming interested. And through this kind of investigation, your relationship changes with it. The pain doesn't necessarily go away, but it changes. The physical sensation changes. And in time, you build confidence. You build confidence that you can do this. You can um, recognize. You can accept and allow. You can investigate. And you can see it as not belonging to you. The other thing I'd say is that physical discomfort has been an amazing teacher for me. I think it has potential to be your teacher too 
Most of us don't want to hear that, though. It doesn't sound very good. And again, working with that is just as important as anything else you could possibly be working with. Working with physical discomfort is a great template for everything else you do. (coughs) So I'd like to encourage you the best of your ability to frame your experience with as much kindness as you can and to be open to the possibility of going right into the heart of it whatever it is taking time being patient with yourself if you have a reaction no problem You can try again. So, again, we practice with physical challenge. We practice with mental, emotional challenge. We practice with whatever circumstances we have because we want to be able to live with more ease with whatever we find ourselves faced with. I had um, an experience a few years ago of having an emergency appendectomy. And then that was followed by a pelvic abscess, so that wasn't very pleasant. And I remember saying for both of them that I was so happy that I had a practice. I wasn't sure how I would have dealt with it without it. And so in a sense you could say you're practicing so that you can deal with the big things, but you're really practicing so you can deal with the little things too. And unfortunately, in contrast, my uh, brother-in-law recently had a brainstem tumor and had surgery and was left very impaired. And I think I got to see also what happens when you don't have a practice, when you don't have a support, when you don't have a way of holding experience. And it was pretty devastating. It was really devastating. I think it was made, there was a lot of suffering There would have been a lot of difficulty anyway, but there was so much extra suffering. So when is the time to do this practice? Right now. And what should you be practicing with? Anything and everything. It doesn't matter if it's small or big. And know that you're on the right track if you're just turning toward it a little bit. A little bit at a time is fine. At Abhayagiri, the monks chant an homage to the, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And they have some words that are encouraging. This is what they have to say about the Dhamma, the Dharma, the teachings 
the truth the way things are. They say, Sanditiko. It's apparent here and now. This is the time to do it. Akaliko. It's timeless. It's true, it was true 2,500 years ago. It's true today. Ehipasiko. Sometimes they say, come see for yourself. It translates as encouraging investigation. Your investigation is important. Upanayako, leading inwards. And the last one, Pachatam Veditabo Vinyuhi, to be experienced individually by the wise. That's you. That's your wisdom. And it also means that each one of us has to walk this path. Each one of us is challenged to do that. So I thank you for your attention and your support. And I wish you all the best in your movement toward facing in instead of turning away from whatever challenges arise for you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.